Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with me, your host, Danielle Burnock, that lady on the internet who loves you, connecting you to the love that heals so you can love yourself from survive to thrive. Today, I have with me Mark McNear. And Mark, he is a licensed clinical social worker in New Jersey with over 30 years experience. He focuses on helping others who have trauma, abuse, and addictions, but... I want to pause here, listener. I want you to take note of this. He not just helps people with his extensive schooling. Mark is a trauma, abuse, and addiction survivor himself. He knows it from both sides. And he's the author of his new book, Finding My Words. So welcome to the show today, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing your story with my audience. Thank, thank you, Danielle. It's a pleasure to be here. I... Like I was telling you before we started, I'm going to start a little differently than I normally do. You Let's are do a <laughs> clinical social worker. What led you to become, go into that line of work? I, um, it's a long time ago. It was about 35, <laughs> 36 years ago that I, um, uh, I was in Bible college and I was studying to be a pastor. And then, um, because of some of the things that in my past, I went into counseling. I went into counseling individually, and I also went into counseling with my wife for premarital counseling, and that was really, really helpful for me. and And, and I realized how how significant mm-hmm. that experience was for me. And mm-hmm. so I really felt like there was there was a change in a career path for me. Mm-hmm. And I decided to uh, I started kind of asking people questions and and taking more courses in psychology, and, and then. Before I knew it, I, I found that my career path had changed and I took more classes at the end of my time in Bible college and psychology and took an extra year actually um, in, in Bible college and then went on to New York University where I got my master's in social work. Yeah, I saw you have an extensive education. So I wanted people to know that you are very smart and very schooled and know clinically what you're talking about, but you also know from the other side as well. Yes. How long did you practice before you found yourself in trouble and you got help? And, and how did that transition come about? Yeah, that's a great question, Danielle. I, I think that I was practicing for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. And um, when I started at NYU, my anxiety was really bad and my, my depression was really bad. And so I, I had a referral. Someone gave me a referral for somebody in the city, a psychiatrist, and I went to see him and he gave me medication and the medication helped tremendously. It made me feel somewhat normal, mm-hmm. uh, from all of the anxiety and all the depression and 
little did I know at that time, which I found out it was because of trauma. And, and so, you know, um, I started taking the medication and in the beginning I was okay, but then I needed more and more medication to cope. And so uh, with a lot of people with addiction, you know, they increase the dosage. And so what kind of medication were you on? I was on medication for depression. I was on antidepressant. I was also on uh, medications for uh, anxiety. And I was also on medications for ADHD. Wow. So a lot, of, a lot, a lot of, of different medications. Yeah. Wow. So you were in counseling at the beginning when you were in school and with your wife and that. So you didn't go to counseling for trauma back then? No, like trauma was never discussed. You know, we talked a lot about um, depression. We talked a lot about anxiety. We talked a lot about um, just my inability to sit still, but it was never uh, talked about. And, and the the uh, field is relatively new with trauma. So it really hadn't been talked about until the end of the eighties, beginning of the nineties. And then wow. now really it's talked about a lot. Yeah. So you were really addressing the symptoms rather than Absolutely. getting to the bottom, which was helpful, but not curative. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and in the long run, it was worse than <laughs> worse than when, than the uh, prescription itself. But, you know, I didn't know that and the doctors didn't know that. So I look back at it now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty with any of mm-hmm. these things. But but I, I can definitely see why why I went down the road that I went down. Mm. Well, where did you end up that, you know, a change happened? You were practicing and then. Well, I was practicing and then it was in July of 2014. My dad passed away. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. And, and so that seemed to open a door for healing for me, even in myself, to be willing to talk about some of the things that happened to me. And so it was July 2014 that my dad passed away. And then uh, fast forward to March 2015, I uh, called my psychiatrist and I asked her for refills for medication. And, you know, it, it uh, became apparent very quickly that I was abusing the medication. And, and so she had talked to me and said, you know, you really need to go to rehab. So I, um, that wasn't something <laughs> that I, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to hear. And, and so, um, you know, I talk about that being one of the best days of my life and one of the worst days of my life. I can imagine um, that. Yeah. yeah. And so at that point, Danielle, I really wasn't functioning well at all. I, um, wasn't seeing clients. I, I wasn't well enough to, and I was, uh, sleeping, you know, half the day and the rest of the day, just kind of like around the house watching TV and daydreaming and, kind of zoning out. And so wow. it was a real wake up call for me. And so talking with her, she um, recommended rehab right away. And so I waited for my wife to get home. Debbie came home from teaching. She's a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so um talked with her and Debbie was just wonderful with it. She was like, I think this is wonderful that you're getting the help that you need. Mm-hmm. And then I needed to contact my daughter. My daughter was in Florida at the time. And so contacted Emily and texted with her and she was just wonderful as well and saying, you know, I'm so proud of you for making this decision. So within the next couple of days, I reached out to colleagues and got names and uh, phone numbers of rehabs in the area. And I told this in my story that, you know, I had done this a lot for other people, for clients, but I'd never done it for myself. So, so it was hard. It was a really humbling experience oh, for me, sure. yeah. you know, and they'd be like, 
what does the person need? And I was like, I need. And then I would go on to explain to them what I needed. So I found a, a rehab a couple of hours from my home and uh, checked into the rehab and was there for three months. And wow. so that, can we back up just a little bit? Sure, you, sure. You, you talked with your wife and with your daughter and they were both proud of you. So it was evident to them that you had a problem, but it was not to you. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, I think I think that's uh, right. Why do you think it was like that? And is that very common for men to hide behind or not know what's going on or hide it maybe even from themselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. I definitely hid it from myself. I wasn't Mm -hmm. aware of it. I think Debbie became aware of it in in time. And I think Emily knew that my behavior was not right. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think in the book I put something like, you know, it was a real clear picture of, you know, uh, what addiction is like, everyone knows except the addict, mm. you know, they're not aware of it. I, I, I was clueless. I just wow. knew I needed to get more medication to get through the day. Wow. So tell us about rehab. You, you checked yourself in and yeah, that, how did all that go? And tell us about like the nature of, of addiction, like you were starting to. Yeah, elaborate on. I, I think that, um, it was a culture shock for me. Because, you know, I had used, been used to being the therapist and now I'm, I'm the I, patient. I just want to pause here for a minute. Like <laughs> listeners hear this. It would be a culture shock. I mean, I'm the one who's helping people. And now suddenly what I need help. Yeah, absolutely. And so I went to rehab. Debbie drove me. I was in no shape to drive. And so Debbie drove me and we had a really good conversation on the way. The first part of the trip, I was really, really quiet and withdrawn. I, I kind of felt like. Uh, the reality of the situation hit. And so I felt like I had disappointed Debbie and I felt like I had disappointed Emily. I felt like I had really disappointed family and friends. I felt like I disappointed my clients and, and, and most of all, I felt like I disappointed God and just felt like, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like my life was. Over. Yeah. So, there's just so much shame that comes with trauma yeah, like, and abuse and addiction and that. It's, yeah. Well, like what's the matter with me? Like, mm-hmm. how did I end up here? And so I got there and they went through all my bags and looked for contraband. And so <laughs> that was, that was a, a fun experience. And then, you know, got brought to a floor with about 30 other men, which I would be with them for a month. And then I transferred to another part of the rehab for another two months. It was, it was um, a real culture shock for me. Yeah. And it, and I talk about this, Danielle, in the book. One of the things that was really, really hard for me is as the medication was going out of my system because I wasn't taking it anymore. The memories of my childhood came back uh, with a vengeance. And so that was really, really hard for me because, you know, I had stuffed them down. Did they, did they like come back that you were just remembering or did you have flashbacks or both? Both, both. And, and some of the things, were things from when I was like four years old that I had not thought about in like so many years. And so it was kind of like, how do I deal with this? And and some of the things were things that I certainly wasn't ready to talk about emotionally and I didn't have the words for. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just sat there kind of like, you know, and I listened to what other people said. And that was really helpful just hearing other people's stories. Yeah, hearing their words. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, How do you put and, words to this? One of the side effects of childhood emotional neglect is the inability to find words and the inability to name emotion. 
Yeah. Like you have a feeling. I don't, what is it? I don't know. Do you have strengths and what are your strengths and weaknesses? Uh, what? Exactly. I struggled and with that myself and I thought, what's wrong with me? Why don't I know what my strengths and my weaknesses are? They do those in all the personality tests, but that is a side effect of childhood emotional neglect, which was one of the many things that you suffered as a child. Right. And, and I would find myself sitting there in rehab and feel so emotionally dysregulated. One minute that I would be super, super anxious, ready to jump out of, out of my skin. And then an hour later, feeling so numb and so withdrawn and so detached and just being able to like, just notice that my body was really part of the healing, but it was really painful to go through to notice just the emotional dysregulation. And still to this day, I still struggle with it, not to the extreme, but, you know, um, just being there. And, and the other thing is the staff and other uh, patients there were great and they would encourage me to share my story. And there was no way that I was ready to do that. And so that was part of the challenge for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a um, psychiatrist, and I, I talk about him in the book, Dr. Joe Garbley, and he just was absolutely wonderful. He he was a, a man that um, had so much compassion, and he had shared with me in the first session. He had looked obviously at my case notes and some of the some of the things that had happened to me that I did report, and he had said to me, "It looks like you've had some substantial trauma." And yeah. he said, you know, <laughs> I've read the as, book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as a, yeah. And he said, as a result of that, you know, Mark, it's going to take you a long time. It's going to take you years to work through it. And which is probably both encouraging and discouraging at you the know? same time. I would like a magic pill and be right just fine. But then when it starts taking long, you're like, wow, that's one of the things I struggled with in my journey was beating mm-hmm. myself up because I was taking so long. I didn't have anyone there because I didn't have any help just kind of waded through myself but it does the more significant it's like the deeper the wound the more time it takes to heal yeah that's a perfect way in a way it was really encouraging yay I have all this time and then it was like what are you talking about it's going to take me years to get over this and 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 I found that it did take me but a few years to begin, and I'm still processing it, but, you know, to be able to do some real substantial work so, to start to feel much more comfortable in my own body. Mm-hmm. And have that safe place and rehab those other people to, once you could share, yeah, that, you know, they understood to some extent. They were there in some, their own story, variation on a theme of the same kind of inner upheaval. Yeah, I had a, a friend there that I, again, I talk about him a little bit in the book and he, he he's a friend to this day. And um, it was just so wonderful, you know, to be able to talk with him and, and for him to be able to hear just a little bit of my story and to be able to say, yeah, that's a, that's a strange story. But, you know, I remember him saying, make sure when you get out of here that you get help, you know, find someone that you can talk to. And that did happen. God allowed that to happen. But, you know, just even one person mm-hmm. that is really safe in your life is so substantial. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So one of the things I'd like you to share with our listeners today, the difference between PTSD and C PTSD, because you had C PTSD, right? Yeah. A lot of people have never heard of the C. They just yeah. like, Oh, what's the C in front of it? What difference does it make? It's a big difference. Yeah. So we talk about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
disorder, and then we talk about complex post-traumatic stress disorder or complex trauma. Sometimes you hear it referred to as complex trauma. And the way that I'd like to explain it is not a real scientific way, and it's not a real clinical way, but I think it, it's a good picture of what happens. And that is, if you take over here, you take a plate and you put a pancake on it. You know, that that's more of a, a picture of uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, you're talking about a person who's had a trauma, significant event in their life that's been very disruptive to them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, over here, take a plate mm-hmm. and put a stack of pancakes, which represents a, a stack of traumas that has happened in a person's life over a period of time. You know, uh, both of them have different results. They're mm-hmm. similar but very different, you know, and, and, and so um, whether you've had PTSD or whether you've had complex PTSD, both of them are, are significant and they need treatment. They need uh, support, but it looks a little bit different. And one of the, one of the things that for uh, complex trauma that they talk about is just mood dysregulation. It's difficult for people to regulate their moods. Uh, the shame is even greater because they've had more events that tell them that there's something wrong with them because we tend to personalize the things that have happened to us and say, what's the matter with us, especially if we've had abuse as, as children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some other side effects of complex PTSD? You mentioned pervasive shame and the mood the, dysregulation. Mood dysregulation, things? things like anxiety and depression. Sometimes people have symptoms that are that are uh, synonymous with ADHD, having a hard time sitting still or a hard time focusing or a hard time concentrating. Uh, difficulties with sleep is very common. Um, difficulties, um, I already mentioned, with concentration, that's one. Chronic pain can be another. Um, substance abuse or... Um, Addictions, whether the addictions be process addictions, like things like pornography or shopping, eating, you know, um, well, they wouldn't be, let me, let me go over that again. So, so substance addictions would be like eating or uh, substances like drugs or like alcohol. Process addictions would be things like uh, pornography, gambling or shopping, things like that. That's interesting. You mentioned process addictions. Do you, can you elaborate on that? Why would someone develop a process addiction as opposed to a substance addiction? And can you elaborate you know, a little I, bit on I, those differences? You know, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I can, it can specify just different people reach out to different things and they find relief in them. You know, mm-hmm. Gabra Mott talks about, um, you know, don't ask why the addiction, but ask why the pain. Yeah. So, you know, it starts with pain you know, extreme pain that people have. And then out of that comes, you know, find things that they find relief with. So sometimes people find relief in, you know, um, gambling. You know, it, it causes a lot of problems in the long run, but, but in the beginning, it brings relief to the person. You know, okay, so could, would it be fair to say that the difference between a substance addiction and a process addiction would be a substance is something that you take in and, to your body and a yeah. process is something that you do do exactly okay. yeah that's a great way to put it wonderful i i try to simplify even like you did with the pa- the stack of pancakes thank you for simplifying because 
all those big fancy words sometimes can confuse us and we're not listening anymore because we're trying to, how did you pronounce that word? Exactly. But, but we can understand pancakes and we can understand uh, taking something as opposed to doing something. So Doing something. Yeah, I, I think things also like just not feeling safe in your body or feeling a numbness, mm-hmm. you know, are, are, are symptoms of trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will sometimes report a lot of problems with headaches. Mm-hmm. Um, mentioned nightmares before, things like that, you know, things that really disrupt one's life. Yeah. So when you were released from rehab, how did you cope through that? You were in rehab for three months. Three months is a really long time. Is there any particular story from rehab you want to share? Well, I, I think that um, the the one story that, that sticks out in my mind, which uh, caused the book to come about, is just the fact that, you know, I was sitting in one one meeting with a, with a group of guys and a counselor and the counselor asked me to tell some of my story and, and I just couldn't, you know, I didn't have the words and I didn't have the emotional uh, wherewithal to do it. Mm-hmm. And so it became clear to me in rehab. One of the things that I learned very clearly in rehab is I had a lot of work to do, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to uh, talk about my story in a safe way in which I didn't, um, get so dysregulated that I'd have to reach for things to comfort me that would be maladaptive, you know? And, and so that's like out of three months, that's something that I walked away with just how much woundedness I had, how much trauma I had. Owning the truth, validation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just realizing that, you know, as, as I said, when I went to rehab, I felt like I had disappointed all of these people. And that was definitely true. These groups of people, but I also felt like I disappointed God and, and that just was not true. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the verses that I've taken out of my recovery and just really clung to is the verse in, in, in Romans 2, 4. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance or it's the kindness of God that leads to change. Mm-hmm. You know, I was ready to become very militant and beat myself up and, you know, get regimented and, 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 and that wasn't, it was kindness that I needed. Yeah. And I needed that kindness from other people yes. and I needed that kindness and I needed to see it from God. And I also needed then, which I'm still working on, <laughs> you know, transferring it to myself, becoming mm-hmm. good at, you know, um, allowing myself not to beat myself up because that's something I grew up with. Right. You were taught to beat yourself up and that's, <clears throat> that's hard to unlearn something that's been beaten into you. <clears throat> so, You'd mentioned that your dad had died in 2014, you said? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was before the whole rehab thing. Um, I know he is the source of the majority, if not all of your trauma. Were you still in contact with him when he died? And did yeah. you have a relationship with him? Was it just superficial and pretending it never happened? Or, well, I mean, how did his death affect you? Was it relief and? Yeah, that's, that's hard. Now we're going to a hard area. I, I think that, um, looking back at it now, um, I was one of his caretakers. Mm-hmm. My sister did a majority of the caretaking, but I did some of the caretaking with him. So it was a matter of doing the right thing, even though I didn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, um, 
Yeah, there was caretaker. What was wrong with him? Um, he he was in his nineties, and and so it was pretty much old age. Mm -hmm. He had some some different issues with uh, sugar, and he had some things with Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. um, and some other diagnoses. And so he really couldn't care for himself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so um, we did a lot of the care for him. You know, I, I can actually say to you that there was such mixed feelings when he passed. I can imagine. You know, um, such there were so, complex feelings, like the complex yeah, PTSD. Absolutely, there, I'm there so was, glad I'm not glad. What's going on? You shouldn't yeah. be glad. Oh my goodness, I shouldn't feel like this. Absolute ambivalence. You know, such mixed feelings that feelings of loss, but yet a feeling of freedom. Mm-hmm. And like there was also Danielle, this feeling of now what? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think my body was so geared up being around him. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that was the beginning of healing, though, for me, you know, because I didn't see it at the time because the addiction got worse and I medication. You still hadn't addressed the trauma at that time. The trauma was just shoved underneath at that time. Absolutely. So there were, like I I mentioned to you, there were things that I had not thought of in in, um, 51 years. I came out in rehab, you know, uh, flashbacks, memories of things that happened uh, to me. was, well, your trash uh, can story, if you want to tell your trash can yeah, story, so, you can tell that one. <laughs> yeah, that one's allowable, right? <laughs> yeah, we don't want to get graphic on here. We, yeah, uh, listeners, we had a conversation well, before. We don't want to get graphic because it could be. So yeah, so, we're going to avoid so, that just to save your ears. <laughs> so so at uh, four years of age, my dad had forced me to eat carrots. And um, I didn't want to eat the carrots, and I ended up um, with the carrots and ended up vomiting as a result of it. And uh, I began to cry and he became irate and he picked me up and he threw me into the garbage. And he said, stay there, you're a piece of garbage. And so- um, So sorry. Thank you. So um, that was one of the memories. There was also a lot of other memories that I discuss in the book. There was you know, sexual abuse uh, from the age of four to about the age of seven. And there was a lot of verbal abuse or covert verbal abuse. And um, there was emotional abuse. Now that I look back at it, there was a lot of emotional abuse uh, that took place during that time. And so all of these memories and some of them, honestly, I had not thought about since when it first happened. You know, I had compartmentalized and put them away um, and said to myself, I would never talk about any of them. And so that's um, very common. I'm going to pause here for our listeners. That's extremely common for children to do that is to hide it away because it's not safe to have it out there. And it's a natural coping mechanism that God has given us. But once we become adults, we need to bring that out so we can heal. In time, slowly, you know, and and so that has been my process over the last um, eight years to be able to go through things and went through a lot of treatment. Uh, I got out. You asked me about rehab, what, what happened afterwards. I went into individual counseling uh, with somebody who knew a lot about trauma. And I also did IOP, intensive outpatient uh, therapy. You did what? Uh, IOP. IOP? Which is yeah. Which is um, going to therapy in a group. And it would be three times a week for like two to three hours. Mm. And so I did that. That. Uh, and then I was going to a lot of meetings. I was going to a lot of uh, NA meetings, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, 
and um, also went back to church and, and uh, we established relationships there. And so um, I went for individual counseling for about, I think it was like a year and a half. And then I had to address a lot of the issues within my marriage and, and um, a lot of the sexual brokenness that I had. And so I um, got in touch with a ministry, uh, Pure Desire Ministries, and I worked with a gentleman, Harry Flanagan, and he was wonderful in, in holding my story well mm. and going through. And I remember him saying to me, I'm going to have you uh, type up on a Word document, you know, your trauma history. And I was like, Oh, oh gosh! That's you know. Oh my goodness! But um, <laughs> so in, I so engaged with him and and felt safe, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, and so I did that. And as I did that, even more memories came out, and um, he just held my story so well, and 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 we were able to process a lot of the trauma that had happened to me. And did uh, did recognizing and identifying and validating the multitude of trauma in your life, did it bring about a certain measure of aha to yourself of no wonder I was like that. No wonder I behaved like that. Did you get any of that through your process of looking back and going, wow, yeah, now that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and it's good that you said it like as a process, you know, like I would think about this and I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense with this. And then it was like, oh, no, that happened. Oh, that makes sense with this. And mm-hmm. and so things. It's became, like puzzle piecing back your yeah, life together. Yeah. And, you know, the goal for me and it was to stay somewhat, somewhat emotionally regulated, you know, and some days I did better than others. But that's OK, because I was in a healing process. And mm-hmm. and so I took about two years off from work. Um and just worked on things intensely, you know, and then uh, I'm still to this day working on things a lot, doing a lot of different therapies, um, uh, just entered into doing uh, internal family systems of therapy that's really helpful with trauma. But I, you know, I've just really worked on, and, and for the first couple of years, I just worked on my relationship with Debbie mm-hmm. um, and my relationship with my daughter, Emily, and she, uh, has since gotten married, and so just worked on my relationship with her and Brand and her. Well, oh, that's you know, wonderful. And, and, See, there's healing in relationships. I'm going to pause for our your listeners again. There's healing in relationships too. There, it's not just you. If you need to heal, you can heal your relationships. If everyone will participate in that, you can bring healing to your relationships. Yes, I'm thankful for that. I experienced that in my life. I know everyone does not because you have to have willing participants on both sides. Yeah, on both sides. Yeah. And and I'm really, really thankful, um, you know, through the grace of God, Debbie has been wonderful in my process and and understanding my background and and where I came from and and why some of the behaviors were so disturbing. And and also with my daughter, Emily and Brandon, they have been just wonderful. During During the pandemic, they came to stay with us. And it was just a wonderful time to really connect and bond. Wow. And, and so really, really thankful for that as well. Sounds like there was a lot of kindness there too. Absolutely. Tons. Tons. Kindness. Oh, kindness is such a nice word. We need that. And one of the words, I think, in your subtitle of your book is the word gentleness. Yeah. We need gentleness. Yeah. We need gentleness. We need kindness. It's part of healing. When someone's healing, they need gentleness. They need kindness. It's a part of healing. So 
you're a believer. So when did faith enter into your story? And did you ever blame God for that or get mad at him? Or tell us about your your faith yeah, so, up and down or walk or around the however messy it could be. Because yeah. I mean, it can be a very messy thing when you throw yeah, it in there, which is almost everybody. <laughs> it yeah, it's messy. messy. It's a messy story. At um, age 19, I was out um, on New Year's Eve and I got hit head on by a drunk driver. And so I, that landed me in the hospital for about a month. I broke my femur and, and uh, had pulmonary embolism. And like I said, came close to death. And so I got out of um, the hospital after about 30 days and again, felt lost. I've had a lot of those times when I just felt lost in my life, not knowing where to go. And so searching around and looking for things, I um, picked up a book by Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, mm. and read through that and and really focused in on, you know, a couple of parts of it. it. talked about getting a Bible, you know, and, and underlining faith passages and going to church. And so I um, did those things. And one night at church, they gave an invitation, and I went forward and accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And so that sent me on a path to go to Bible college. And so I wanted to go into the ministry and didn't know where I was going to go. And and then it changed my third year where I ended up, you know, not going so much into the pastoral track, but going into counseling. And so, yeah, um, things went well for the first, first couple of years, but unaddressed trauma yeah. will get you every time. And that's what I've learned. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, was I mad at God? There were days when I was like, I don't understand why you've allowed this to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I felt frustration and I felt anger and I felt the pain. And there's times when that comes back now. And, and you know, but, but you know, Danielle, as I look at it now, I kind of see so much more of the purpose that he had, you know, in, in me being able to work with other people now and being able to, Corinthians, Second Corinthians talks about, you know, being able to provide others with, you know, the, the healing or the gentleness or the kindness that he's provided. And now I get to do that. And it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. You know, I can relate to other people, you know, with the pain that I have been through with trauma and understand and not judge them mm-hmm. for their behaviors, but to look at it and realize that their behaviors had a purpose. A lot of times they don't work, but they had a purpose in them. And, and so I, I'm really blessed. I have a great life and have um, the opportunity to, I, um, you know, started seeing people about two years after getting out of rehab and then slowly uh, started part-time and then went to full-time. And now I get to see people that have a lot of issues with trauma and addiction and abuse and uh, wrote the book, which was an exciting thing, hard thing, but an mm. exciting thing to do. And now, you know, getting to speak and also write articles and do things like that. It's been wonderful. How did you go from being a victim to being a victor to not staying in victim? Because you had a lot that happened to you. It'd be very easy to stay a victim and go, this is not fair. Why this happened to me? But you're not doing that. You've become a victor. How do you, I how could someone, I, you know, get from there? What would you I think tell if someone? I'm honest, there, there have been days when I go back into that <laughs> for a little while and then I'm pulled back out of it. You know, I reflect on you know, how much God has done for me and how wonderful my life really is. But it's easy, you know, 
um, to go back into that if you're not careful. I think yeah. things like gratitude, I think having good friends yeah. that remind me of why I'm on the journey that I'm on is really, really helpful. My yeah. wife, Debbie, is just awesome. I mean, Debbie has never, you know, shamed me or said, like, I can't believe you did this or I can't believe you did that. You know, she oh. understands from the background that I came from. Uh, same with my daughter, Emily, and her husband, Brendan. So I have so many things to be grateful for, but, I, uh, but I'd say, you know, I'd be quick to say that it's easy for me to fall back into it if I'm not careful. Yeah. So I need to remind myself. Because you're human. Absolutely. Yeah. You're human. And, and that's just human. Something that's, I've thought of recently, I'm not sure if people who are Bible scholars would be upset with this, but I think it's helpful because the word of God is alive. It says it's alive. And we get revelation looking at it. Like you look at a diamond, it's got all different facets to it. Because the Bible said that Jesus bore our wounds and he was beaten and bruised and all that. People, you know, talk about it was for our sin and all that. And it says that. I'm not saying it's not for that. But recently I started seeing it that it wasn't just for that. Because it talks in Hebrews about him being a faithful high priest and how he is touched with the feelings of our our weaknesses, our infirmities. And sometimes it sounds just all too King Jamesy for me that I, mm-hmm. I want it to sound like everyday life. So it's because I think he wants us to know how much he relates that Jesus bore all of that because he feels our pain. Yeah. You know, he feels our pain. He feels our agony. He feels our anguish. He feels our frustration. He feels all those things. Like there's an organization out there called he gets us and mm-hmm. they are they write beautifully about it. They make it very human and natural and easy to relate to. But these scriptures that are connected to us receiving healing, physical healing from sickness and disease, I've heard them appropriated. I do that myself. But I see them now in the emotional wounding as well, that he he bore all of that because he gets us. And he wants mm-hmm. us to know, I know what it feels like because I love you. And I want mm-hmm. you to know. I know what it feels like. I'm there with you right there in the middle of that horrific pain. Mm-hmm. I get you. And so I just want to share that. I don't know if you can relate to that or if you ever thought of it yeah. that way. You think that sounds a little bizarre. But no, I think it's a chew on that. I mean, think about that. Yeah, I think in Hebrews, it makes it clear that, you know, there's nothing that we're going to experience that he hasn't already experienced. And he can come alongside us with compassion Yeah, and understanding. Yeah. You know, there's no temptation that we've had that he has not faced. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have a high priest that talks about in Hebrews. We have a high priest who can identify with us. Yeah. In our, in our weaknesses. Yeah. And I, I stumbled over that for a long time, too, because I'm a high priest and all that gets I get lost in that, too. If mm-hmm. you're not into all that, the sacraments and things like that, of those kind mm-hmm. of things. So I. Not to disregard how it says it there, but, you know, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. He, you know, we understand mm-hmm. that an arbitration, a mediation in the court yes. system, if I'm trying to simplify this for everyday people, that he is the mediator that understands both sides of the table. <laughs> so your book, let's talk about your book. You have that with you. So you hold that up and tell sure, us about your book. What, led, us to, what led you to write it? and. Tell us about the title. It is uh, Finding My Words, A Ruthless Commitment to Healing Gently After Trauma. Ruthless and, Commitment to yes. Healing Gently After Trauma. Beautiful. 
be and and the finding my words came because in the process I found my words, but I didn't have my words. There was a lot of things I couldn't verbalize. And so that was something that came about it as a result of going through this process. The the play on a ruthless commitment, you know, it, it going through this is you know, it takes a real commitment that feels ruthless that you have to do it, mm-hmm. even though how hard it is. You know, and but doing it gently, finding people that have gone before you and know how to do it and treat you with love and grace and mercy and respect is so important. And I've had so many people. I've had counselors that have done that. I mentioned Harry Flanagan. He has been and is wonderful in that area of my life. And I've had so many other people that have come alongside. Um So many people, when I started sharing just a little bit of my story, were like, you know, you should write a book. And I was like, no, I'm not putting that stuff down. And, um, you know, so I was very hesitant to do that. And then um, we were at a a Bible study with a couple. We had Bible study with uh, many Friday nights. And, you know, they uh, were talking about it. And um, Eva, her name is, had said to me, uh, why don't you write a book? You know, the story is amazing. Why don't you write a book? And I was like, you know what? Maybe I will. You know, and so that was quite a few years after rehab. And so the chapters um, four, five, and six of my childhood, that I talk about my childhood in the book, um, that came from the work that I did with Harry Flanagan, where he had me write down the traumas that had happened in my life and, and, and had me explore them. And so it, it, it really was the hand of God, I believe. And then, you know, having someone like Josh McDowell write the forward, somebody who wanted to c- contribute to the book, but also had been through his own significant trauma was a real blessing for me. So, yeah. Yeah. Writing a book is something. And when you're writing with stuff like that and you put it out there and you're like, they're going to read this. <laughs> No, <laughs> I get that. I, <laughs> I really get that. There's a lot of fear a, a person has to overcome to put their memoir out there, especially when they dealt with trauma. So, so what are you doing now? How can people uh, connect with you or reach I out am, to you? I am doing counseling. Uh, that's my real passion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also doing writing. I've been writing articles and having them published. Um, doing speaking like this, which I love doing. And so there's, it, it's really great to have the diversification. Um, spending a lot of time with my wife, Debbie. Good deal. <laughs> uh, I'm planning on going out to Wyoming. My daughter's in Wyoming. Oh, so wonderful. Planning on spending a couple of weeks out there with Emily and Brandon. So uh, life is good. Wow. Life is not easy, but it's good. Yeah, you're right. It's not easy, but it's worth, it's worth the journey. It's worth the effort. Yes. So is there anything you want our listeners to know before we finish this up? No, if they want to get in touch with me, they can email me. Uh, they can go on my website, www.markmcnear.com and have their email. Okay. So th- thank you for sharing this today, Mark. Thank you for opening up and being so vulnerable with my listeners today. And thank you for all the work that you've done and that you help others because you're being like Jesus. I'm just seeing this. I'm, something I said a few minutes ago, he's a mediator that knows both sides. And you're like that with what you're doing. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank Thanks for having me on. Thanks for inviting me and having me on too. Oh, my pleasure. This was wonderful. And for our listeners, thank you for being with us today. And get a copy of Mark's book. Reach out to him. 
And thank you for being with me today. And I love you. Till next time. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Victorious Souls Podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further. So please visit us at daniellebernock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you.